Welcome to The Curriculum, a podcast by Cornerstones Education. Here we discuss all things curriculum, plus leadership issues, teaching tips and much, much more. Hello and welcome to this latest edition of The Curriculum, a podcast by Cornerstones Education. I'm your host, Caroline Pudner, and today I have ventured out of the office yet again, uh, this time to meet someone rather special, particularly in the world of early years education. It's Alistair Bryce Clegg, who's a well-known early years expert and educational consultant who has published, is it 20... Two, I think it's two, 22 two books, books yeah. even given a TED talk, which you can see on the on the <laughs> yeah, website, on YouTube, yeah. <laughs> uh, and whose main work is offering training and fantastic conferences and resources through his wonderful website, ABC Does. And he's even made a recent TV appearance on a very popular programme, but more to be revealed <laughs> in a moment. That was scary too. <laughs> <laughs> so firstly, welcome to the podcast, Thank Alistair. Thank you so much for inviting me into your home you are today. Um, so for anyone listening who isn't aware of your work or or what you do could you give us a brief lowdown of what your work is and also how you got to the point that you are at now well I started my life as the child of a teacher so teaching has always been a big part of of what I do and a lot of my family are teachers and it was something that I was either going to be a teacher or a blue peter presenter I think very early on (laughs) I decided I was going to be one of the two and used to go to school with my mum a lot and watch her teach. She, to be fair, was a key stage two teacher and uh, was a very good teacher. So spent most of her time in year six, mm. which is where apparently all the good teachers are. <laughs> also the myth was. And her view of early years, I think at the time, was that well, early years didn't even exist, but of reception nursery was that if you, that's where all the play bits happen. So maybe if you weren't so strong as a teacher or whatever, you went and taught down there and then there's plenty of catch-up time by the time you got to year six so I did never intended to go into early years I did I worked uh, for a year as a classroom assistant in a primary school um, and then went and did my teaching qualification and said to my tutor even though it's a primary course I'd like to do juniors please because I can't see myself as an infant teacher mm-hmm. and she was either really wise or cruel and said <laughs> well I, you know I think you maybe need to do some infants so I'm going to pop you in reception and I did a really long placement in a reception class and initially hated it uh, it was quite early on in the year it was in when I trained you did quite long placements uh, and then sometime in university and uh, I had a really inspirational teacher called Sally Roy who was just amazing and I think by about halfway to, through the practice, it began to click a bit. And by the end, I was absolutely in love with it. And this concept of how important it is for early development and how complex child development was. And in my head, if I'm honest, I was thinking in my early 20s, you know, when you're four and five, there's not a lot you can do, really. Sing some songs, take me guitar, which I did, play in the sand, read some stories. And that kind of, you know, yeah. and actually then you realise that yeah, it is about singing songs and playing in the sand and reading stories. They're all valid, but they are all pathways into future learning. And if you get a handle on that and you can make those really exciting and solid and engaging, that's when you're really going to capture children's learning. And I think, you know, also to see or to understand that's where the hook comes for later on. If we can really get children inspired as early years yeah. children, 
then you stand a much better chance of keeping them when the curriculum starts to get a little bit narrower and a little bit drier. No wonder some children disengage. I think we as adults would engage with some of the curriculum that's you know out there and, and being promoted. So I kind of got the bug and then ended up specialising in early years and then spent the majority of my teaching career as an early years teacher across all the age groups in early years and key stage one, then became deputy head of a three-form entry infant school and then became head of that infant school, opened an early years unit, the first early years unit in the northwest of England, um, which was interesting, scary, and a little bit of a disaster to start off with, but got better. (laughs) Well, we'd gone from being um, three reception classes and a nursery in a separate building, where we had five tables, 30 chairs, a carpet area, and we were very much topic-driven as a school, and so we did teach on the carpet, go and do an activity related to the teaching point at a table, then playtime, then sometimes activities in the afternoon if there's readers to be heard and we moved to knocking one of the walls off the nursery building on a central space and three other learning spaces and a big outdoor area and suddenly we were free flow continuous provision self-access about 12 adults in one gigantic space wow, complete change. yeah complete change yeah. and you know at the time we thought about it we talked about it and we thought we could do it yeah. and then the children arrived and we suddenly realized it was significantly <laughs> harder than we thought it was going to be and so we had some teething issues but we stuck to our guns oh, and we went with play being the you know major part of what we were doing and it took us a little while, but eventually we started to get that to work uh, really well. And as a result of that working well, I got asked to go and speak to other places yeah. that were setting up units. I got asked to go and work with some students at university, at Manchester Metropolitan University. And then I started to get asked more and more to write little bits or go and speak at various conferences. Mm-hmm. And so over the last kind of maybe four years of my headship, a kind of consultancy seed started to grow. And then I'd been ahead for 10 years. I also was hitting 40 and uh, an opportunity came up and I thought I can either take this opportunity and do some consultancy full time. And I loved my job as a head. I loved it. And I thought if if it goes wrong, I would be no issue to come back to headship mm. at all. I enjoyed being head of a school. There's lots of aspects of that. I still miss in this job, even though I love what I'm doing. And that was 10 years ago. So I started off with one job uh, working with a local authority in Blackpool and thought, well, I've got one job in the diary. Let's just see what happens. Yeah. And then it has just kind of grown and grown. I started a blog, which you've mentioned, which now has become a website and then started off on my own training, do lots of writing for, for Bloomsbury and various other people. Mm. And I now have the lovely job of being able to work both nationally and internationally so I get to see early years practice all over the world Mm. and realize how remarkably similar and sometimes different uh, it is but that really helps me to continue growing all the best things I learned about early years I learned I never told them I learned them from watching other practitioners so I'm a little bit lucky and quite greedy in that I get to watch lots of really talented people do really amazing stuff and I just add all those skills into my skills bank and then help other people by you know talking about well here they try this and here they do that and maybe try that yeah I suppose those people when you are isolated in your own setting you haven't got the luxury you, you, of doing you that. don't so yeah. having someone like you to come in who's seen so many like you say internationally for yeah. wherever it's to sort of distill some of the the best practice it is very valuable for people i think what's also really important for me to cling to is that apart from the fact i am still going and working with settings most of the time if Mm. i'm I'm not doing training because that 
keeps you sharp and it keeps you fresh and it means that you're not just saying oh I've got this great idea I had in the bath try this Uh, but also the fact that each team is really unique and individual as children are so it's never a one-size-fits-all so I've got a view of early years I you know I write about it I talk about it a lot Mm. but that doesn't always apply as a complete package to everywhere that you go so I don't go in and say Here's the Alistair Price Clegg way of doing such mm. and such. It's about going and working with the set and saying, well, where are you now? Where would you like to be? Have you thought about this way? Have you reflected on that? And then putting realistic steps in place yeah. rather than a, a one size fits all because it never, ever does. And as people, all of us grow and change, your thinking grows and changes and therefore your practice grows and changes. So yeah. it is... It's fluid. It is fluid. fluid. It is really fluid. And there are fundamental principles that you can talk about yeah. around pedagogy of early years. But ultimately, yeah, it's a really is a fluid process of change because uh, your team changes, you know, and so it can make one team member difference can make a huge yeah. difference positively and negatively to where a team is in terms of their development. Mm. So I think always well maybe not always but we are sometimes conditioned into this aspiration of the utopian existence of an early year space i've never found it Mm. i just find lots of people who are working really hard Mm. on a journey to quote a really naff phrase (laughs) but it is on a journey to be the best that they can be given who they are and the team they've got and of course each year group of children each cohort is different from the last so there will be common threads again but that's why your your environment your approach has to be unique and change across the year because the children themselves are unique yeah and i'm sure many of our listeners listening to this who are early years practice or any teachers will know what what you mean by that from one year to the next it can seem so different children's interests which are really important in early years they they can change you know depending on what your group of children are the mix of children the ages of absolutely their interests and i think that's what the early years foundation stage curriculum not that it's a perfect curriculum Mm. but it it allows you to do that if you have got the self-confidence and the freedom to do that within your setting whereas when i first started to teach my when i first job i got the file of um information was left by the previous teacher who'd retired had the topics in it for the half term so there were six week topics and the teaching plan mapped out so i could have told you in three weeks time what i'd be doing at 10 o'clock mm. because and we stuck to it like glue and there was no opportunity for children to or to recognize differences in children you taught the topics that you taught and again they were often science-based there were key stage one topics that were taught in reception and I remember one of my favourites, not, was we used to do houses and homes as a topic, which which can be exciting. But we did the seven main types of housing in Great Britain. So we had to talk to our four-year-olds about the different types of houses, like bungalows and flats and semi-detached and detached. And I remember sitting there thinking, what, you know, why am I doing this? Which child is going to walk out of school and go, oh, look, mummy, there's a bungalow and there's a semi-detached house. But it was on the topic planner. So you did it. And then you'd do like math sheet because we're very worksheet based. And you'd put all the numbers in houses for no other reason than you were doing houses and homes. So therefore everything had to tie in the topic. So as an adult, I found that very restrictive because all of my creativity, which is one of the reasons I went into teaching because it's a very creative profession, kind of gets sucked out with, you've got to stick rigidly to this kind of topic-based approach. Yeah. So actually it seems like 
your approach and and what you like about this age group is the creativity the flexibility and responsiveness responding to children knowing the framework and where you want the children to get to or the you know the body of skills that you're you know hoping they'll yeah they'll work on but very much going organically from the children from the setting I think and that's how my my practice has changed over time when mm. I first became a reception teacher I didn't have any of the depth of knowledge that I've got now around child development or skill-based learning I very much like the element of fun that was in early years so I came from an engagement angle and I do say it far too much now you know often to practitioners high level engagement is is your link to high level attainment and progress and engagement comes from high levels of well-being and high levels of well-being Mm. from children who are settled and happy and play for the majority of children and adults to be fair brings high levels of well-being why a play-based approach makes sense but um so that's kind of the angle i came from that i wanted children to be really happy in the space when i began to marry that with reflecting on my own practice and thinking well why am i doing that and what what in my head Am I thinking the outcome of that is going to be what's my expectation of play? It's another phrase that I overuse now. Then I started to get far more productive uh, play-based approach as opposed to just having a very enthusiastic, fun-based approach, which it used to punctuate formal teaching. So it would be formal teaching, yeah. then a fun-based approach, yeah. then formal teaching. And actually where I am now is about integrating learning into play and understanding that actually play is not something you do while you're waiting for the learning to come in the form of an adult a really good early year space looks like play and feels like play to the children but it's Mm. underpinned by some really good rigorous thinking reflection observation planning by an adult and so when somebody comes along and says to any of the settings that I work with a lot and you talk to me about attainment through play they are able to say well this is my environment this is why I created this is the assessment that prompted these areas this mm. is what my expectation of these areas are these are the skills I'm trying to develop these are the interests of these particular children so that's built into there and there is a narrative around how the space is supporting teaching and learning as opposed to people who want to see how good a teacher I am come and watch me teach on the carpet and then leave it's mm. about if you want to see how really good I mm. am come and watch me do a bit of interaction, but go and then look at my provision. And when I do observations, which I do a lot of, often with senior leaders, often in schools, um, I really encourage them to look at the spaces where there are no adults. Yes, observe the adults in interaction, but let's go and find spaces where there aren't because that's where you see true play and learning happening. I was going to ask you that, actually, what you look for when you go into a setting, what immediately strikes you, other than a ball of Play-Doh, hopefully yeah. not with the eye. <laughs> <But> <laughs> Which what, wouldn't what, be the first time. <laughs> what, um, you know, and, and I think it's true, you can tell a lot from the children and what they're oh, doing independently. Yeah. Or, and children know. always tell the truth. Yeah. Mm, so if you're... <laughs> unfortunately, yeah. unfortunately. what it's hard to do in sometimes is not to interrupt play to talk yeah. to children but what I always find is any random stranger especially a smiley one yeah. children are falling over themselves either to show you something tell you something or ask you to fasten their shoelace it's usually one of those three things mm-hmm. because in early years they're also really used to usually adults coming in and out all the time yeah. so I have lots of discussions with children about and always I start with you know I'm just new here I've come to play today what are the best things do you enjoy playing with where should I be looking where are the really good stuff and that's where you find and also interesting I'm very interested in in perceived gender difference in early years and looking at that aspect of which 
particular children is there are there gender differences and what's not binary in terms of you know, yeah. male and female but all of that I did an MA in teaching with an earlier specialism quite a number of years ago and I'm in the middle of my doctorate at the moment again in early years which felt like a very good idea at the time <laughs> but in the midst of everything else we do and also yeah. you forget that to get a doctorate it's really quite hard <laughs> <laughs> so I do sit there sometimes thinking mm, this is interesting but that get, yeah. find some motivation but what's really good for the the doing the doctorate bit is that it allows me to indulge myself yeah. in aspects of earliest practice that I find interesting mm. like the kind of gender lens thing that I'm looking at at the moment that I wouldn't necessarily have had time to do and my day I would get distracted with other stuff yeah. so not only does it improve improve your thinking I think and allows you to reflect it also allows me to take aspects of things that fascinate me because there's so much fascinating yeah. stuff in the development of children and just dig into them it. Deep, yeah, yeah because there's a lot of people I suppose in that field researching that in, in very meaningful ways yeah. And in doing your doctorate, you get a chance to absorb that and really look into that. Yeah. And, and then the you time, distill yeah. it and then you can... Yeah. And it does. And it, it changes the the idea of... There's been some nice gaps in between my further study because it does make your brain hurt. Mm. But it already, my doctorate has changed my practice because oh. you reflect in different ways, but also you just have access to other yeah. you know amounts of information to have a look at i'm not saying to be a successful earliest practitioner you've got to do a doctor by any means at all but i think even if it's blog reading or ts yeah, reading yeah. just you know there's plenty of information out there in fact yeah. there's almost too much information mm. out there but just to keep yourself fresh yeah, yeah and allow other people who fancy doing a doctor to do a doctor allow them to distill the information yes, yeah. and pass it back to you in a distilled form because even that again can help to shape your thinking and, yeah. and kind of move you forward can i just go back onto play again because yeah, you talked about play because i i've written a bit about this and talked to earlier practitioners about the and like you say for a while it's been thought of as something you just let children go and play yeah but it's central isn't it um i mean is there anything that you've seen or that you think about play i know you've written a, a fantastic blog about common play behaviors i wonder yeah. if you can explain what so that means it's the idea of play being as open-ended as it can mm. possibly be and allowing children to explore a play space and interpret it through their own medium as opposed to saying you know, we are all going to be playing with this and this is how you play with it. So I am very much, you know, children need to collect a body of knowledge that's going to take them through life. They need to know things, but they also need to apply those things because it's when you apply what you know that it becomes a reality. Yeah. And the more you apply it, then the more creative that you can become with it. So when we think about things like the characteristics of effective learning, where they talk about children being creative and critical thinkers, mm. you're only ever going to become a creative and critical thinker if you're given the opportunity to think yeah. and be creative in its broadest sense. So a really nice open-ended space allows for that to happen. If you are leaving the carpet and your choice is quite narrowed so it's tricky words in the sand it's pouring in the water tray with jugs it's can you make a hedgehog on the malleable materials table and all you're being given are a list of tasks it's little wonder that a lot of children will disengage from those tasks because they're not of interest whereas if you said on the malleable materials table we are experimenting with imprinting or joining or rolling but you can imprint whatever you want in fact you can make your own imprinting devices by wrapping string around a block or you can use the tires on the truck whatever it may be mm. i'm still getting you to explore how you make an imprint 
but I'm not saying you can only make an imprint by using this particular whatever it may be. So if I'm wanting you to explore pouring, if I want you to explore molding, I'm not saying you have to just because we're doing under the sea as a topic, you've got to mold with a starfish you know, shape. Mm. I'm going to say there are loads of things you can mold with and I'm going to link some of those things to your interests or you can create your own. So I very much think that an environment linked to learning is one that is underpinned by skill development but that is very much driven by children's interest and then peppered with adult input. So if it is autumn, and we are talking about autumn, for example, which kind of isn't when we run into winter, then you know you might pepper your environment with aspects of the thing that you are talking about. Yeah. But I wouldn't be saying today you could make a hedgehog yeah. in the malleable materials table. Can you print with an autumn leaf? So you might, and what I would have done as a teacher at autumn and did, I'd have got my autumn leaves, I'd have got my autumn palette of colours only, I'd have put them in a tray, I'd have got my autumn coloured sugar paper, I'd already have half a display in mind, and I would say to the children, right, either independently or with an adult, you are going to paint the back of an autumn leaf and you're going to print in autumn colours. And I think if it's a play-based environment, my question would always be, well, why? why? Why are we doing that? If children are doing that independently... Does it reinforce skills of autumn? Does it reinforce knowledge of autumn? Does it articulate their understanding of autumn? Or are we saying, actually, what we're doing is printing? So you can print with a variety of objects because we're exploring how to print. Some of those will be autumn mm. leaves linked to the thing that we're talking about. If I engage with you in your printing, and I might and I might not, depending on the role of the adult, I might use the language of autumn that I used on the carpet when we we're talking about as a reinforcement, mm. but I'll use it in the context of printing. What I won't be saying is you've got to use a leaf to print. So what you're talking about really is the difference between enhance those pepperings yes. are enhancing it rather than continuous provision. rather than continuous provision which is actually about supporting the characteristics of learning yeah. so if you really want children to be creative thinkers you have to allow them space to be imaginative Absolutely. and also to come up with an idea or theory yeah and as maybe we talked about this before the podcast if you're the adult in that setting that you might be there just to encourage just to nudge the child to be confident enough to see that yeah. through and maybe fail but at least they've been using their creative and some children need more support than others yeah. there's often lovely opportunities for peer learning that goes on so a child will have an idea and you can see another child see that idea and think oh wouldn't mind having a go at that yeah. i can sometimes use the analogy of like a toolbox and say if i'm doing training if you imagine a child's head being like a toolbox and you open that box, now what you want to give them is tools that they can get out and use again independently. Yeah, if you just give them activities, they don't often separate the tool from the outcome. Yeah. So if we're just printing with autumn leaves, they're not exploring the printing process. Whereas if we explore the printing process, then that's a tool that I can use later on. Yes. And the other important bit for me about continuous provision is if I teach children to print using whatever resources, I can't then put them away till next autumn. If I'm teaching you to do, say, spherical printing, so often you might get conkers and roll them around in the bottom of a tray, mm to explore that or different size balls. If you then say, well, I'm putting the conkers away till next autumn when we do spherical printing again, I haven't created an element of continuous provision. So if I teach you to print, I need to be able to then provide some printing resources. If I teach you to use different techniques to paint with, different brushes, different things to apply paint with, I can't then put them away. No. I've got to leave 
access to those so yeah. you could think well in this picture when we did do that painting with the pan scrubs or whatever it may be which was great I might try some stippling with that or I might try and create an effect with that using what I learned about that resource yeah. so sometimes enhancements are enhancements and then they disappear mm. and sometimes enhancements become part of provision because they are allowing children to access a skill yeah. so there's a balance between and there are people in early years who don't like the concept of an enhancement. You know, children should be able to explore an environment. And I think you've got to be careful that your enhancements make sense. Like for yeah. me, if you put tricky words in the sand, you could call that an enhancement to sand play. But it's a rubbish enhancement. <laughs> because who wants to come to sand <laughs> yeah, and pull tricky What's words the out of sand? What's children want to do in yeah. sand? They want Literally, to, they want they to write are, the yeah. word sand. They're not gonna, you're, you're not going to get yeah. boys rushing outside shouting, drop your scooters, the tricky words in the sand, come on, come on. They're literally going to be going outside saying, don't go in, there's tricky words in the sand, and she's got a clipboard, don't go in. And so what, oh, what then I would talk to practitioners about is, well, why do we have a sand yeah. tree? Yeah. What are the skills and experiences mm that we want to encourage children to learn through sand play, for example. And so even though you could bury tricky words in your sand, what's your expectation when a child outside of an adult or even with an adult comes and finds those tricky words? If they know them, they know them. If they don't know them, they don't know them. What do you think is going to happen if we dig them out of the sand? So for me, I would keep tricky words well out of the sand tray or the water tray on a ping pong ball. But um, I think then we start to think around, okay, if you think about a sand tree and where the kind of idea for common play behaviours comes, that it's not an absolute, it's just to get you thinking. And you would think, well, if I am not at the sand tree with children and they go to explore sand, what are the things that they commonly do in the sand? If mm. I'm if they're at the water tree, what are the things they commonly do? So, so are the common, common play, play behaviours. So they're not exclusive play behaviours. Yeah. So then we'd work as a team and we talk about things like okay if you're not in the sand tray what are the things that children commonly do with sand and somebody will invariably say throw it we have a big discussion about that and when children are thrown why might they be thrown and I love the psychology of play and I love getting practitioners to reflect on if they do that why might that be so we often talk about trajectory if in the throwing of sand oh, yeah. we talk about negative attention you throw sand at somebody they cry but negative attention, you throw something to somebody, an adult comes over and you get a bit of a dressing down, mm. negative attention. And then I sometimes say to people, what else is there to throw in your indoor environment? So if you've got a child who's throwing sand because they can, and they maybe are exploring, throwing as a, as a skill or maybe a schematic play, what else inside can they throw? Or, you know, that kind of trajectory bit about cars at ramps. Mm. And then we have discussions around appropriate things to throw in the indoor environment and how actually by just tweaking that you can sometimes stop yeah. some of that more as it's perceived antisocial behavior so we talk about all the different things that that uh, children might do in sand they come up you know you get filling and emptying you get sieving and sifting you get digging you get enclosing and burying, and burying. Yeah. so those mm. things and then we start thinking about those as skills so if you're saying if the skill of digging for example What's the most emergent thing you might dig with? Probably your hand. What then makes digging really easy and accessible for children at the beginning of that your development? And then you're all the way through to how can you add challenge? Da, da, da. What common play behaviours are not is top, middle, bottom. So you're not saying, well, once you've had a scoop in preschool, you'll never get a scoop again. So you'd never see a scoop in reception. Or you're not saying, right, your pink basket children, your orange basket children, which I've seen. And neither are you saying top, middle, bottom shelf. So you're not saying you can use the things from the top shelf, you can use the things from the bottom shelf. What you're basically saying is the majority of my resources for digging 
will be the ones that are going to be continuously out yeah. will be linked to where my children are currently but I'm going to give them some more emergent digging resources because they will use those resources in a way that maybe I haven't even thought mm-hmm. about. You don't always dig with a digging resource. Mm-hmm. And also I'm going to give them a bit of challenge because a classic example is things like if you talk about construction and the skills of construction, when we look at blocks and if you're building at low level with wooden, flat wooden yeah. blocks, there is not a huge amount of skill for a child who's, who's well rehearsed in building with blocks. You tend to stack them one on top of the other or bridge and create little holes to pop through. Mm. But blocks are amazing for small world provision as well as having block areas because children can quickly construct with plain wooden blocks mm. which allows them to then articulate their small world play if we only ever gave them a carno to build with they'd spend longer making the structure and actually if they've gone into the small world area they've probably not gone in to construct they've gone in to rehearse the skills of small world yeah. so low level construction materials like blocks brilliant yeah when blocks start getting very challenging and is when they get bigger and you start to build really high and really mm. wide and you're looking mm. at balance and things like that so you don't ever ban or take away emergent resources that's not the idea of a common player behavior yeah. it's about thinking about your provision in a, in a slightly yeah. different way and it's interesting because those emergent those sort of quick to use like you're saying the blocks can quickly construct something if like i was saying before if a child has an idea and they're urgent to, to sort of see make a shelter for yeah. the small world tiger who's running away from yeah. something they don't want to make it out of meccano well, they're going to lose yeah. interest and likewise with a big scoop might help yeah. to create big waves absolutely uh, which is part of or you want to play. dig a big hole or you want to dig yeah, it yeah. so what you're doing then is you're using but yeah. if you only ever give the child a scoop they're only ever going to scoop. Yeah, so it's variety. So, yeah, it is. It's because mm. the resources that you put out invite mm. a type of play. Mm. If I put a particular resource out, then I am already channeling your thinking as a child, yeah. unless you are extremely creative and think, oh, no, I can use that resource in a different way. Yeah. Um, so the other day in a small world area where it was girls actually who were playing with fantasy figures and they wanted a castle like Elsa's mm. castle. And so they got the blocks and they knocked up this three-story mm. castle in a very short space of time. It was lovely, but imagine. the play was brilliant. I saw it again with some uh, boys that were in the sand on this occasion using buckets and scoops. And what the adult had done is for their enhancement is she'd done some little mini-me's of superheroes and she'd put Velcro dots on the superhero's face and then she'd cut all the heads of her children out and laminated them with a Velcro dot on the back so you could put your face on any superhero. And they were having in the sand a superhero interaction, which is not uncommon, but they wanted hideouts. So they used a bucket in their hand to make some really quick, simple moulds that was their hideout. And so if, again, if you'd said, well, buckets, sorry, aren't available to mould with you've got these small jelly moulds and a teaspoon they're just you know they're not going to do it that's why they're going to rake the sand together with their hands and get it done so common play behaviours is not about restricting play it's not about restricting resources it's about practitioners just thinking about skill development it's about knowing the children that the the common thread of what you're saying is is sort of just get into their heads for a bit which i'm sure all good practitioners will do but think again watch them 
as you're getting to know them and see what not just what their interests are but like you're saying see how they play yeah if they're throwing stuff it's 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 very easy to judge isn't it why children are doing things but just standing back and thinking and watching them and working out are they practicing a new skill yeah and it's then i can't remember the word now but it's allowing that to happen and it, it's making room for that it is so and, that they can explore it and, and the hard thing in school-based practice it, the, in the schools that i work with is that there's often not a lot of room in their timetable uh-huh. because there will be a lot of expectation around good level of development mm. around their session of phonics often you know or they may not do continuous outdoor access so it's oh. playtime to throw into there yeah. plus you've got pe plus assembly every day and suddenly these periods of continuous provision nice. are yeah. just getting shorter and shorter and shorter and the direct teaching is getting longer and longer yeah. and longer well can i ask you about that actually because as regular listeners will know we've been looking at the shift now in and the big news about curriculum and about from Ofsted talking about testing being less emphasis on testing still concerned with outcomes but uh, more on uh, schools deciding what their curriculum is going to be and looking at the quality of education so in terms of what you're saying it seems to me quality of education in early years is what you're talking about which is looking at children responding to them and allowing them to you know develop their characteristics of learning uh, skills in that area but also and engaging them and getting to know them and that you have a you know this balance between knowledge Mm. and skills that you are giving them knowledge as an adult but you're letting them rehearse their own skills through the play space that you provide and a lot of the work that I do talks about trying to take some of the not rather than pulling children out of play to come and learn, okay. trying to take a lot of the learning into the play space, which can be quite a tricky thing to do, especially if you're used to saying, well, you know, I'm going to do a maths input, then I'll have red group, green group, blue group, yellow yeah. group, and then my TA will do whatever they're going to do. I'll be outside mm. and you just end up on this group rotation. Mm. So... Could you give us an example of well, what that might mean then? For there are lots listening? of lots of ways you can do it. You can if you've got a really well structured play space, a space that's been linked to who your children are in their development, mm. by their very interaction with that space, then they will be hopefully taken on board a lot of the things that you want them to learn. If you've got an overview in your head of where you want to go, where your children are through observation and assessment, yeah. then as an adult, it is really quite easy once you get the hang of it to involve yourself in play and start delivering those objectives. So rather than saying, come to my table, we're going to make Towers of Ten with Multilink, which I've done a million times, especially when I was a teacher, I might be in the construction area. And if it's appropriate, I'm. we are doing exactly the same objective, yeah. but we are doing it through in that play space and then if I'm in the play rather than behind a table it means that I'm able to manage scaffold observe record reset because often in a good play based environment especially with younger children it gets unwound reasonably quickly Mm -hmm. because they interpret resources in lots of different ways and they don't put things back and you know Mm -hmm. so things that have been set up to facilitate learning like often if you get you know children who've got like schematic behavior for transport and are filling empty in and you get a lovely water tray with nothing in it and then 15 minutes in everything that you possess is now in the water tray (laughs) if you're not there to acknowledge that and then decant the stuff again you cease to have the water tray as a usable environment because everything's just in it and children can't get their hands you're with a group behind a table and you're looking up and everything's going okay Mm. so sometimes i said the other day to um, a practitioner i was working with i I sat in on our group session 
And it was, you know, she really was engaging the children in, in the group, this group of six that she worked with. They were really enjoying the interaction they were having with her. She was differentiating her questioning. And the other 24 children were, there was no outdoor access at this particular space and the other 24 were in play. And so I said to her afterwards, can you articulate for me the progress and learning of those six children you worked with. And she was brilliant at saying that's where they were, that's where we got them to, I differentiated there. And then I just said, could you do the same for the 24 that were in play? And she kind of said, I don't know what you mean. And I said, well, can you talk to me about what they've been learning during the last 15 minutes or their potential for learning? Because obviously it's not as prescriptive. And that was a kind of a penny drop moment for her where she said, actually, no, I can't because I was head down, partly because you were watching me, I was head down working with this group, they're in play. Mm. And so then said, well, it's great that they are in play. Can you start to articulate the environment you've created and how that impacts on their learning? And that's when you start to get the interesting conversations about why have you got what you've got? Mm. Um, You know, I asked somebody the other day who had a jigsaw table, Why just why have you got a jigsaw table? And again, she found it hard to articulate why she had a jigsaw table other than, well, we always have a jigsaw table because mm-hmm. jigsaws are good for early learning skills. Well, there are loads of really good early learning skills you can gain from a jigsaw, but it doesn't. you can also gain them from lots of other things. Yeah. It's about saying, like I know with children, we used to have puzzle tables and some years they loved them and you couldn't get enough. Yeah. And other years they didn't yeah. touch them yeah. because different children have... Exactly, you know, yeah. I suppose people have been talking about year one, year two, getting more more focus on knowledge and uh, you know being a bit more rigorous really in terms of that and and getting children to acquire knowledge what's the role of EYFS then with that and can you have you talked earlier about applying knowledge and, and that's very much what I think as well where you have in your mind what you want children to know about and to and to have an understanding of but without them being able to apply that and again looking at your idea of really good continuous provision if they're doing it there and they're doing it with you as well in adult-led, then is that what you think? Do it is. You think and you can still and prepare children for, you for can, what they've got to you do? Know, I wrote a whole book on transition and the ethos of the book is that the play-based approach should travel through into year one with the children. Yeah. There is nothing to stop you applying mm. uh, national curriculum objectives all doesn't matter what your opinion on those is if you are asked to apply them there is nothing to stop you applying those Mm. through a play-based approach in key stage one Mm. and even beyond Mm. it's about people's interpretations and perceptions of the word play and so lots of settings i work with who do have a play-based approach going into year one and very successfully and beyond some of them have struggled to keep calling it play because the perception of parents is yeah. planes for what you do when you're babies. It's such a shame, isn't well, it? it is we need because, a change in you know, culture for. We do, and I'm really, I'm, you know, I can afford. I'm not in a classroom. Mm. I'm not a head teacher, so I can afford to say no. We need to keep calling it play because we need to value. And as adults, we should be playing more, never mind mm. children. And so people call it things like a discovery-based approach or yeah. an investigation approach. And actually, what it is is a play-based approach it's just again looking if you think about continuous provision as not being the stuff that holds it's not the stuff that's just out all the time nor is it the stuff that just holds children till they do a group work or an adult gets there if you think about it as being a tool for teaching and learning for children to be able to rehearse their skills Mm -hmm. as well as find out investigate then there shouldn't be anything that stops you applying that principle to a year one curriculum the provision will be structured in a slightly different way yeah and what's interesting again around the the concept of common play behaviors is 
I sometimes work with year ones who are doing transition and the year one staff really want it to work and they understand the fact that for lots of children, they're not yet national curriculum or they're not in a level of maturity yet where they can sit in the carpet, go to a table, etc. So it's a more developmentally appropriate transition. So they think, well, I can't turn my whole classroom into an early years space because I need the tables and where we're going to put them and lots of practical things mm. go on. And so they do four corners and they end up with like a sand tray, a bit of role play, often a shop because they think it's got money in it and that'll really help, you know, knowledge of money. And, you know, maybe some construction and something else. But then when you look at how they resource those areas you might find in your sand area because it's all that's left for year one you're going back to kind of scoops and buckets and in your construction area you're kind of going back to duplo mm. um, and that's all the provision they've got so actually children are being invited to visit skill levels that are significantly lower than they were when they left reception right. so always I talk to reception about giving an environment map to year one and saying by the end of the year if you're taking my children this is where we were. These are the areas of learning we were really strong in. Yeah, These are the brilliant. ones that we're developing. Brilliant so advice. if you can only have four corners, mm. make sure your four corners mm. are fed from this observation and assessment. Mm. And also I can give you a lot of my resources because likelihood is when my children come in in that first six weeks of assessing them, I'm going to create an environment for assessment. My provision will be more basic provision than continuous provision whilst I assess them. And so you can utilise some of mm. these resources mm. because... I won't be using them in the That's same way. That's a lovely idea, and I'm sure one that practitioners could just put in place immediately. Almost. Well, sometimes you know. heads will say to me, "It feels like my year one children have gone backwards in terms of their the, and the play of something you've done once you've finished your worksheet." So then you've got children who are not at a maturity level to want, or a compliance level to want to sit and do a worksheet about whatever. Mm. So if they know there is the carrot of play, what they tend to do then is rush that bit just to get to the play bit, and the play bit is not even a player that's going to take them forward in their yeah. learning through so play. So low stakes for them, really. Yeah, it is. They could just, yeah. yeah, and then sometimes you get that behaviours kick off. And so it's about the science of play mm. and thinking, if I'm going to have play, it's got to be enjoyable, mm. but it's also there as a, as a teaching tool. Mm. So it looks like play, it feels like play, you enjoy it like play, but there's a bit of rigour underneath and a bit of thinking around what we have. Have you got a, a book on this topic that listeners could yeah, I've got. I mean, there are, to have a read Which sounds it. like a horrendous hard sell. Well, but it's, like, um, I asked you. Yeah. <laughs> got a couple of books on continuous provision. There's one that's continuous provision in the early years and one that's continuous provision, the skills, they're kind of partner books. Mm. Uh, they, they both would stand alone, but they do go together. And then I did transition into Key Stage 1, which is a blue book, which is a lot less photographs. It's a lot more theory. And it talks about how you use assessment and observation to help you to create a space. Um, And then how this concept of continuous provision to continue the learning for the children, but also to continue to support the adult Mm. in their role. And very important that you don't go back. Yeah, Yeah. you're saying it's it's building on. Yeah. Because, I mean, thinking about this thing of knowledge and the rigour of the curriculum, I'd argue that cognitively the brain of a child in early years if you're if you've got this great continuous provision and an atmosphere of inquisitiveness and curiosity yeah. and and you're helping children make links rather than stay static in their learning yeah. that's a fantastic foundation for the brains they're going to need yeah. if they're then expected to learn you know quite a lot of chunks of knowledge and be expected to apply them flexibly in a, in actual fact 
the early years can play a huge part in that, can't it? A good, good yeah, setting. It can make them really enthusiastic learners. It can make them really quizzical. It can make them really curious. But also it's that passion for learning that yeah. you, you recognise that coming to school is a positive thing mm. or coming to nursery is a positive thing, mm. that actually you have a really good time there and you celebrate it for what you do well yeah. and you get to indulge yourself in the activities that you do and that yeah. you learn loads. I often say on my training, you know, it's like if I was to talk to my your delegates for say and say to them, right, I'm going to talk to you about knitting for the next 15 minutes. I know, given a whiteboard and given the skills that I've got, I could make knitting sound funny, interesting. I could show you amazing pictures of knitting. I can show you a, <laughs> a park in Japan which exists, which has been knitted by a woman. It's a massive play park. Oh, I've got loads of knitting stories. And all, we get the end of 15 minutes. Everybody's been engaged. We've all talked a bit about knitting. We may have learned something we didn't know already. But then I say, right, for the next hour, delegates, we are going outside into the room next door where I've set up loads of activities. We're going to stay there for a whole hour this morning, then have some lunch, and then we're going to go back for a whole hour this afternoon. But they're all linked to knitting. So you can practice with knitting, you can draw some knitting, you can read books about knitting, you can make knitting patterns on squared paper. And then we're going to do it again tomorrow, and we're going to do it again. And so... For an adult, you wouldn't be, if you're a knitter, you'd be thinking, get in, that's a dream come true. I'm going to literally be able to knit all day. I love this. Mm. If you're not a knitter and you don't have any idea you want to be a knitter, you're going to be thinking, I'm not going to do this. And you might indulge it for the first hour. And you might discover a passion for knitting, but unlikely you're going to be thinking by Wednesday, right? Yeah, not everyone is. And so you're talking about almost there's a sweet spot and there's a balance, isn't there? Well, there is. I can still talk to you about knitting. And then what I can do is send you off into an environment that allows you to rehearse all of those skills across Mm. a wide range of different areas to be creative and critical. and And I can thread in elements of your Yes, aspects of knitting but it's not domineering but it's not, you know, it's not, and if yeah, you don't choose to, to knit doesn't matter because mm. i'd have to be able to say to you i've got knitting on that table because i want the children to develop the skill of or experience now to experience knitting is not an early years outcome no. to develop fine motor dexterity maybe and yeah. maybe you could argue well knitting's good for that and hand-eye coordination but then i could say to you well if we're going to i could do that with dinosaurs and I could do fine motor dexterity and you know hand-eye coordination. I could get dinosaurs and put their footprints into salt dough. We could bake it, make our own fossils, mix them all up, and try and match the dinosaurs' feet to the right fossil. That's fine motor and that's hand-eye coordination. But what it isn't is knitting. Mm. So it's about you know being able to say if I feel I need to give this knowledge to you about knitting while I'm in control, while, where I'm the adult and I can make the magic happen and I can you know, do all, I've got all these things at my disposal plus my skills. When you go into a play-based environment, mm. it's not about knitting. Mm. It's about you exploring skills for life, rehearsing skills that you've learned. And then maybe, maybe if it's appropriate, we pepper it with aspects of yeah. knitting. But if it isn't, then we don't. No, and let's going back to that knowledge thing. If the knowledge of knit, say knitting, it could be anything, <laughs> but if that is, oh no, I'm going to be thinking about yeah, knitting. Yeah. Uh, look, cardigans for dinosaurs. Yeah, oh, now there we go. Yeah. Cardigans for dinosaurs. <laughs> but, uh, if you, so not sort of like banging it home, you, that that's yeah. what you learn in all week or all half term. The enhancements are authentic, like you yeah. said earlier, then great. But it it will be it won't be long before they maybe encounter that again, and then that knowledge is built on. But 
yeah, it's a fine line, isn't it? You've got to keep the children engaged and interested while they develop those skills, like you're saying, yeah. those lifelong skills. But they don't have to net, nor do they have to play with dinosaurs. No. So, again, working with the set recently, and they've got a lovely tough spot, and they put loads of autumn things in, and conkers and leaves and all sorts of things, mm. and magnifying glasses, and a big sign that said, can you spot signs of autumn? And by the end of the day nobody had been anywhere near the table. So I was talking to the team about, because what I also asked my settings to do is do an observation of the environment as well as observations of children and record them regularly. So we often spend a lot of time observing children, rightly so, mm. but rarely do we step back and say, well, actually what I'm going to do today and next week and the week after is observe my space for an hour and see who goes where and what's working and what's not. Mm. So we're talking about observation of space and I was saying nobody went anywhere near that why. And then, again, just an interesting discussion about yeah. when you're four and five, A, it's asking, can you spot signs of autumn? Does anybody actually want to spot signs of autumn? In play, is a child actually ever going to do that? Is it about investigating, well, what was the investigation? And even though there's sometimes not a firm conclusion and opinions can differ, it's just useful to have that that conversation yeah. so often i will say it to adults even though children interpret resources differently from how you've got it in your head it's still good to ask the question for anything you put out what is my expectation of play when there is no adult mm. so if you're putting out goldilocks and the three bears finger puppets do you expect children to reenact the story of goldilocks mm. independently when there is no adult mm. Or are we going to get different play or bear attack or whatever it may be? Mm. You know, when you're putting those things in the water tray, what do you expect children to do when there is no adult? Mm. And so sometimes even just asking that question makes you think, is this really continuous provision or is this more of an enhancement? So maybe, yeah, yeah I am talking about Goldilocks. We are reading the story. I did want to put my finger puppets out to reinforce the language or maybe for a bit of adult, but I'm not going to make them the feature. They're going to be an enhancement and actually I need to think about this small world area what the skills of small world that children I want children to develop through their interaction with this space can I fill it with resources that are open-ended enough to allow that mm. to happen going back to your common play behaviors yeah. in each area and then I think that's a nice model it's an easy model to sort of imagine and it also takes the pressure off having to impose your topic or your theme and on create loads of resources thing. and get you yeah. know we're talking about shape so we've got shape in every area and it's shape construction and it's glue and shapes and you know <laughs> mm. and and the the, the time it takes for yeah. adults to do that i find with a more play-based approach or more child-led approach to learning you free up more time you've still got to think you've still got, obviously got to organize your resources mm. but it allows mm. you more time to um, think about your engagement with children mm. rather than the relentless laminating of resources to be able to put yeah. you know bits of whatever you're talking about in every single area. Well, I mean, this is a big issue now, isn't it? It's teacher workload. Yeah. So um, have you got any other tips for, you know, people listening who may be overwhelmed EYFS practitioners? That's a big one, isn't it? It's yeah. looking at but stepping also, back a, a bit. What I find is often but not always you get overwhelmed your YFS practitioners because the senior leadership have got unrealistic expectations of what you need to do on top of earlier's foundation stage that you're doing anyway. Mm. And you know that you've got that good level of development. You know there's going to be a national score that comes out. In some schools, adults are given a percentage increase that doesn't actually relate to the children in their space. It was like you got 68% last year so you need to be at 72 percent this year regardless of who comes through your door in september mm. and that's when the practitioners start to feel 
less inclined to play in inverted commas because come the spring you've got a very short time left before you're submitting your evidence for your good levels of development so often things start to shift a gear and it is less play-based and it becomes more extra sessions of phonics lots of interventions going on when actually if the understanding of child development was better and also if the environment was structured in such a way that supported learning you would have loads of opportunities to reinforce the skills they're going to need through the play but again that needs a lot of thought a lot of consideration yeah and I suppose actually now now might be the, a good time for schools to be doing this because what Amanda Spielman and people from Ofsted are saying is now's the time to reflect on your curriculum your whole school yeah. ethos your approach and play in the early years could be uh, you know a major part of that because after all that's the foundation on which you want your children's experience throughout your whole school it starts there yeah, so I think it, the worry, be, it might be a good time yeah. to reflect on that i firmly believe and i know now given your good 25 years of experience behind me that actually if you give a really appropriate engaging play-based curriculum to children in the early years you will get the results that you want but you don't see it as quickly as if you give them a daily 50 minutes of phonics to prepare them for the year one phonics checker. Mm. So it's about having the faith to say, well, actually, at the end of reception, given the markers that we've got to judge children by, and it's a whole different discussion as to how appropriate they are, I might not get my children to those markers because actually developmentally, yeah. they're not all appropriate and my children are all very different. But if I can get them inspired, if I can get the groundwork done and I have the time and the freedom to do that, then in an appropriate time, they will yeah. get to where they need to be. And I suppose just a positive thing to say about this is that Amanda Spielman, who's the, the head of Ofsted, she's actually said uh, in an interview that it may well take time. So she's actually suggesting yeah. that in their new framework next year that um, what they're assessing is the quality of education rather than just the outcomes. So yeah. that's promising. It is really promising. If, if it allows then practitioners and senior leaders to then step back and look at their whole... And children don't make linear progress. No. They are, you know, it's peaks and troughs, it's plateaus, things happen. Mm. And when you Can't fall... just assess it every yeah, term. Little every things term. are big things. So, you know, it, it takes very small trauma in a four-year-old's life or, you know, yeah. to, to have a massive impact on you know, their self-esteem, their well-being and their, what they do within school. And also, because of the pressure some reception teachers especially feel for things like phonics and writing, they start to do a very formal approach to phonics yeah. and writing before children are actually ready, academically yeah. ready, cognitive ready, in terms of maturity ready. And therefore, they start to switch off very very quickly so you got negative outcomes yeah. from well-meaning interventions trying to get positive outcomes rather than yeah. stepping back being brave i say brave I, but actually it looks like the climate may allow for you to yeah. be um That's... you know more forward thinking in a way and just think right we won't do that we're going to look at you said before the podcast we had a, a quick chat and you were saying it's actually if a child isn't ready for phonics yet it's not to think oh well before that is is almost like a kind of void there yeah. are there are incremental steps aren't yeah. there that you can still build upon yeah, that are developmentally appropriate very valuable yeah, that are in, are based around play and yeah. interaction you know in simple things like singing and rhyme and all that kind of thing mm. you know you're looking at initial letter recognition and shape all of those things to come yeah. but, i mean i had an email i get loads of emails which is great and i love 
you know, having that interaction with people. But somebody was saying to me, I've just, it was October half term and they brought their nursery children in and a staggered start up to October half term. And she said, my last group of nursery have just in before the holiday. My head teachers asked me to start setting for phonics with my nursery children on Monday. What am I supposed to do? Gosh. And of course, the answer is, well, you, you don't because you, you just don't. Yeah. It's not developmentally appropriate. Etc. Etc. But she can't just go back to her teacher and say, no. "Sorry, I'm just not doing it." It's about trying to open up that dialogue yeah. and say, "Well, here's something you can read about what comes before phonics. Here's a book you can read about what comes before phonics. Here's a blog post you can read about it." I'm doing all of those things, yeah. and of course, there's been lots and lots of reporting in the past, you know, couple of years around the whole concept of ability grouping and how actually research is starting to show you're quite clearly that ability grouping does not provide all the benefits that we often thought it did and were sold to us. And actually mixed ability groups are where children make better progress. Yeah, it's interesting. I've been reading about this as well and differentiation later on. It's exciting and it's good to keep the rest of what's And also you think about self-esteem, little Mm. wonder. I know there's a particular phonics approach that's used in lots of schools and in one school I was working with, nine o'clock comes, everybody's going to do their phonics. And there was a child from year one who came into reception for his phonics session. Adult was lovely. The atmosphere was lovely. But he is still a year one child going into reception to sit with reception children for his phonics. And you've got to kind of think for that year one boy, even if it's not said you know, externally to him. How does that make yeah, you they feel? Know, don't yeah, they? of course they know. Even when you say in red group, blue group, green group, they know. I know yeah. you can, well, my you, own children yeah. said well, you that do. I'm in the middle yeah. group and they're only six. Yeah, or... exactly. And if I talk to children in a setting and I ask them about what groups they're in for what, they will tell you which group they're in and who's the bottom group, yeah. just like they always tell you who the naughtiest child in the class is. Yeah. And that's, again, for me, I find all that fascinating. The language children use, where they acquire that language from, mm-hmm. the perception of the naughtiest child in the class. And you might say, well, why do you think they're the naughtiest child? Because they're always doing A, B and C. And then you start to think about those behaviours and think, oh, well, why are they happening? And that's why early years is fascinating. Yeah. And also, if, you've, if you've got an open mind. I well, think yeah, I think so. It's, well, what I'm always trying to do is to understand how children work. And then, of course, I had three of my own. Yeah. And that massively changed my view on how children work. Also, the whole nature-nurture debate, which we can't even begin to touch on today. <laughs> also, the influence that yeah. teachers actually have on children outside of the home and how much influence parents and peers have, which is way beyond oh teacher gosh, control. There's all this thing about adverse childhood experiences and, and how you can make that positive influences. On, uh, you know, there's a huge amount yeah, of, I mean, of research into just, that. I know, you know how your children are preschool and how your moral values and da, 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 mm. then they go to school and then they bring with them a whole different raft of opinions and they want to fit in with their peers so things change and mm. it's just... Again, it's the job that we do is a, an amazing job, but it's never a simple one. And the more you look into it, the more complex it becomes. Yeah. And that makes it, on the one hand, really fascinating. Yeah. But sometimes you just think, how on earth do we piece all of this together? If I've got 30 of these little bodies sitting in front yeah. of me, all of whom is unique, and then I am trying to bring together a space and a curriculum that allows them to flourish and be valued and their uniqueness to shine that's not an easy job no. but it's easier when you are in the play with them when your environment is open-ended and ambiguous so they can interpret it in lots of different ways you've got a good knowledge of who they are and also where 
they need to be in terms yeah. of their development. Yeah. And you can start to reflect that in your space. You're constantly re-evaluating, observing, re-evaluating. Then it seems much easier than it did way back in the day when I was saying, right, we're all going to do a carpet session on shape. Now we're going to do half an hour shape activities. Then we're going to go out to play. That was so much harder in that respect than what a good play-based environment would produce. And I think this goes into a a wider topic about a curriculum. When you're reviewing your curriculum or looking at your curriculum principles for the entire school, is um, the early years is an incredibly important part of that whole dialogue as a team, as a senior yeah. leadership with all the staff. And we've we've written a lot about this, but it's very important that you see it as a whole from the things that you've been saying today and whether, you know, how you're going to go down that route with your approach to how you want to encourage those inquisitive minds and that Absolutely. and that engagement in learning right from the dot that the time yeah. they come into school to when they leave. Well, um, often in the early years, we would use the Leuven scales of well-being and involvement, and they mm. are a useful tool uh, for lots of different uh, things. But they apply to all children and adults. Yeah. You know, and also I think in, in terms of whole school ethos, happy staff make good teachers and you know happy children make good learners and if you've got stressed overworked and unhappy staff then as much as you try and leave all of that at the door we are human beings and we are interacting with little human beings and also children are very demanding and they are constant so in an in an early years environment particularly there is no break and you do feel shattered by the end of the day because the life has been sucked out of you whilst really loving that yeah but actually what adds to work I was talking to another teacher recently and he was saying it's we don't mind hard work especially when you love the job and you and you know you're making a difference that the the workload issue seems to be when meaningless tasks are put upon you like you were talking earlier about cutting out laminated letters for things it's not effective to your practice or to the children's development and and I think to do that properly then from what you're saying you need to stand back and reflect on practice in the early years and I'd argue as well as a whole school you think what are your we've written about curriculum principles what are the principles what's yeah. the ethos in your school if it's the environment and a love or, or community spirit or whatever it is how does that translate and then it sort of it gives you a, a parameters, some yeah. parameters to work within. And obviously, from what you're saying, strict topics and and keeping rigidly to things in early years isn't always the best approach. You can enhance and yeah. you can do direct teaching. But for those of you listening who do topics in the early years, it's nice to hear Alistair's approach to how you enhance children. But really, you're there to sort of encourage yeah. those common play behaviours and and develop their skills within them and for them to make connections. It's quite organic, isn't it, it really? Is, but it's underpinned by quite mm. a lot of rigour and assessment. Yeah. And, and, you know, for people who want data, you've got lots of data in terms of your observations, in terms of your assessments against, you know, the earliest outcomes. And the goals, yeah. yeah. So there is lots that goes on. And there are some settings that I work with that don't have any topic at all. So they would just say, we don't do a topic-based mm. approach. We go with seasons, weather, so what's yeah. happening currently in our lives and then we go with whatever pops up so if you find a spider in the sink we might go for spider in the sink then we might end up doing somebody's had their hair cut so we went into hairdressing and then yeah. we had somebody been on holiday so 
Although if you are a topic-based school and you've got your topic boxes all beautifully labelled and laminated, which I did, always in Comic Sans because that was the law if you're an infant, <laughs> um, then you're thinking suddenly, oh, how would that work then? So we wouldn't do autumn. you know. Well, it's ourselves usually followed by autumn, followed by celebrations, followed by you know yeah. growth. We wouldn't do that. And you think, well, you do lots of aspects of that because in the spring, when things are growing, you will still plant your crest seeds maybe you'll talk about growth but what you won't do is a topic on growth you will just yeah. do you know applying those outcomes and objectives to whatever is coming up yeah. at the time and we've seen as well as some schools that do a balance of that yeah. so they might do a topic uh, an idea for a topic every other half term but within that allow for that responsiveness to children's interests or yeah like you say if someone's come in and their grandparents died you know yeah. they'll talk about that and and you, or you might go off on a another theme, but it's it's being more flexible is important. It really is, and I think what it's always good to do is not to say right from next half term we're not we're going to be topicless, because often then if that's where you are comfortable, mm. even though you think well no that makes sense to me I'd like to move in that direction if you jump. It often spirals out of control. So I, what teams I work with, where we think about moving forward, we often spend half a term just discussing it and saying, right, if we were to take a step away, how would that look? What might we put here? How would that work? Mm. And then that feels so much more comfortable thinking, well, I've reflected on it yeah. for half a term. Now I'm going to do it. As opposed to saying, right, when we come back on Monday, we're not doing topics yeah, anymore. That's a huge leap, yeah. isn't it? Even though for the you, children as well. Well, it is, it? yeah. But the staff often wanted to think, oh, that's a good idea. I want it done. That makes sense. I want it done now. But again, the most successful outcomes are usually from teams that have had a period of consideration and reflection and then dipped their toe in the water and then got going with it. Right, yeah. I mean, if people want to find out more, they contact you, can't they? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and you do conferences, training, yeah. all sorts of of great stuff. So if anyone listening wants to sort of find out more or get some bespoke consultation for their school, obviously contact Alistair. But before I go, I have to ask you about the programme because I've been, I don't know if the listeners listening at the moment have caught a wonderful programme on Channel 4 recently. It's called People's Home for Four-Year-Olds and Alistair's actually cropped up on the uh, on the programme as the earlier... Yeah. What was your role on that, well, Alistair? Well, what was really, what was really interesting... They had done a series last year, which I'd watched as yeah. a viewer, and that was two episodes long. And they'd done um, six weeks where they bring some four-year-olds into an old people's home. And they turn the day room into a what they call a nursery. But it's not what we would understand as a nursery. It's really a place for the children to come and uh, do activities with the adults. Yeah. And then they did lots and lots of tests on the adults around their cognitive ability, their mobility, their grip tests, lots of things, and saw whether that improved over six weeks of being with the children. And what they found in the first series was there wasn't just a small improvement, there was a dramatic improvement for all adults. So second series, they decided to double the length of time, so it's a three-month experiment, and they decided to look at the impact on the children, which actually, nationally and internationally, there are loads of studies on the impact on adults. There are very few on the impact of children. So we did a series of, of tests with the children. Again, not that I'm a huge fan of tests, but we used the Leuven skills of wellbeing and involvement. Mm. I did an ICANN vocabulary assessment on their spoken language, right. what sort of words they use in the length of their sentence, the complexity of the language they were using. They did a visual, a face, visual 
facial analysis, which is fascinating stuff, was done by University in London, where you put headphones on and you kind of put your head not in a box, but towards a box with a television in the back of it. And they play cartoons. But while the cartoons are playing, it's yeah. bits of film, bits of cartoons. The software analyzes your facial expressions. And by analysis, they can do things like judge your uh, level of empathy, anxiety. And they do it with the older adults and it looks at their depression scale. And with the children, it looks at things like empathy. And and it's, I suppose, because your face shows understanding or not what you're watching. Fascinating. So they did at the beginning, but the end, so that was all done. We had weekly diaries that went home that the parents filled in on a daily basis and sent back to me once a week looking at yeah. changes at home. And then we did a questionnaire of 20 questions about being old, which we did at the beginning and the end of the experiment. So lots of questions about, I think if you watch the programme, you'll see Lily at the beginning where somebody says to her, it's actually Freddie, one of the cameramen says to her, how old is old? And she says 32 yeah, or 34. Yeah. So that was one of the questions from the questionnaire. Mm. And then we observed them over these six weeks of their interaction with the older adults. And I could talk about the programme again for another two hours because it was a fascinating experiment to be involved in. But we saw the older adults make dramatic progress in the first six weeks and then gradual progress in the second six weeks. Because basically what they are doing is revisiting established skills. So mobility, memory, language, these are things they have had and they are coming back. So the progress is quite rapid to start off with and then they kind of refine that as it goes on. Children, on the other hand, dramatic progress from day one to the end of the experiment three months later. They were on an upward trajectory all of the time Mm. and all of them made rapid progress. And that's because they are three and four years old Mm. and they're learning lots of this stuff for the first time. And their so, brains are absorbing. Oh, and they're they're just, so absorbent, aren't they? I, it's not rocket science. If you think you've got a group of 10 older people, most of whom are in their 90s and over 100, mm. was one Sylvia, who have been visited by four-year-olds every day. Of course, it's going to make them more mobile. It's going to get them thinking. It's going to yeah. get their brains working. But the significant improvement that the children made, both in terms of well-being, language development, language usage, the empathy was just you'd expect at the end of 12 weeks, ask them the questionnaire again, you know, they're saying, what is old? They're not in 34 anymore. They're saying, well, I've got a friend who's 92 and her name is such and such. Yeah. And I it's know become this. their personal yeah. experience. So you yeah. know that those children have a massively good concept of what it is to be an old person, yeah. which they didn't have 12 weeks ago. Mm. And that will stay with them as they become young adults and then adults. So how they treat older generation will be different because of their interaction with these older Mm. people. So, I mean, it was just, even in terms, I mean, they took on some of the old people's language, which was funny. So... (laughs) The home diaries would say they'd started saying things like ta and calling their parents love and things like that. And there's one little girl whose mum said to me, um, it was Lois, and her mum said, when she never wanted to do things before, she just used to say no and have a bit of a meltdown, I'm not doing it. And she obviously that happened at old people's nursery. And one of the older ladies had said to her, if you don't want to do it, you don't have to get cross like that. You just say, no, thank you very much. And so they practice doing that. And then I'm almost saying it's now really frustrating because I'll say, Lois, you need to get dressed. And she just turns around and very politely says, no, thank you very much. She'll prefer it when she had the meltdown. Because then what do you say to that? You can't say, well, 
that's fine, but actually we need to get dressed, otherwise we're going to be late. No, thank you very much. It shows yeah. that, doesn't it? The so, picking up on the language. Oh, and... but then even their own complexity of sentence. Yeah. Obviously, they are all, were, well, they were at, at nursery and preschool. And of course, they're going to be exposed to that anyway. Mm. But we saw dramatic spikes in you know how they move forward. I think what I was impressed with is the feeling that these children, you know, because I'm a mum and... You can't always give children full attention. You, you can't. Yeah, they're can. not always felt like yeah. they're being listened to by an adult constantly. Whereas the the older people, maybe because of their lack of mobility or just because... No, they just did. They just did yeah. it. But I was so touched by how much the older people listened to the children and, and responded to them and accepted their pictures and said, but that that's was, lovely, yeah. I'm going to frame that. That was a key thing for me was that in a classroom situation or as a parent, you know, they weren't trying to manage a group of 30 children. They weren't having to pick somebody up from, you know, mm. swimming and make the tea at the exactly, same time. Yeah. And so there were really quality, sustained shared talk and sustained yeah. shared thinking over. I mean, we had periods of time where they would sit for 40, 45 minutes wow. just colouring in with an adult. So you've got a four-year-old with an adult colouring in chatting. So that doesn't come yeah. across, obviously, yeah. on the tel- on the programme, but, but that's amazing. And they would talk and the adults mm. were prepared really the hard thing about it was, from my point of view, is that the adults were never going to interact with children the way that an early years practitioner would. Yeah. So there was sometimes a little bit, this is what we're doing and this is how you're going to do yeah, it. Yeah. And let me just help your hand while you're doing that because you need to stay inside the lines. Mm-hmm. And thinking they were being really helpful, but actually being quite yeah. you know, direct. what they've learned. Yeah, how to, exactly. How it was with their own children, how yeah. it was with the school. Yeah. But the level of language shared cooperation thinking was just a joy to watch so a lot of my time if you watch the program you'll see they've got the shelves you can buy from ikea with all the box holes in them and there were nine cameras all from both sides of the room that were behind those shelves so occasionally you might see the glint of a lens but for the children and the adults you really do forget that the cameras are there but also though they were hollow behind those shelves so I got to be like the peeping expert that I could stand. Like brother, yeah, yeah, and you could stand and literally watch, mm-hmm. as well as watch them in the gallery where you can see them on little television screens. Mm-hmm. You can actually watch it live, and that you get just to see lovely things going on. Yeah. One thing that was interesting was that all the people that were involved as experts in inverted commas all asked, "Could we not be called experts?" Because the term expert. Well, it's like a self-given title. And what is an expert? You know, it's not about your qualifications. It's not always about your time served. It's about, you know, a skill that you have got mm. that's unique and polished and honed. So I work with experts on a regular basis that are classroom practitioners that wouldn't call themselves expert. So you'll see if it, when my when I pop up underneath, it says Alistair Price Clegg, early years consultant. But Channel 4 were really keen for the viewing public to be reassured that the people that were making oh, the judgments. I introduced you yeah. as experts. So, well, yeah. it's funny, isn't it? We use so, these yeah. words. I'm describing the programme as being expert. Mm. And every time they said it, my toes just curled a little bit because oh. you just think, you know, yeah, it's in, in general usage, but, you know, what is an expert? Some of those children were bigger experts in some of the things, you know, that they talked about than I was because mm. it's what they know and it's, it's where they come from. And also, I suppose you this is an experiment. Yeah. So... 
you're waiting to see what's going to happen and you learn from what you're watching don't you yeah, and obviously all the time. you've got a huge body of knowledge and you've seen so many different things but what's really clear to me is that you're always learning you're always you absorb yeah. yourself the, the the good practice that's out there and reflect on things and that's such such an important skill for all of us in it absolutely is in life but also if you're in a profession like this where you're working to care for children and help them develop and work in a in a setting and so yes back to the program again I thought it was it was fascinating because as a viewer you're waiting to see yeah. and you're pleasantly surprised and I think you know my children who are quite young enjoyed watching it um, and what I really liked was the production team who made it were really authentic yeah. and so there's nothing scripted about it there's nothing staged about it they let it happen and obviously we as viewers see a heavily edited version because we're mm. filming it over, well, more than three months from beginning to end. And you obviously couldn't show all of that, but you get a really true picture. And they, you know, when the results are shown, you know, the majority of people make really good progress, but not everybody made really good progress in every area. And it would be very easy for them to say, oh, it was just brilliant. Everybody made massive progress. And they don't, you know, they, yeah. because like with children, like we said before, for all of us, but especially the young and the old, little things that happen in your life. You know, Vic was really ill. He had a potential diagnosis of cancer. And halfway through the experiment, he disengaged from the whole thing because he was really worried about his health. And actually, in the end, it was okay. But that also affected his results because he wasn't part of the project. But that was all right because... Yeah, that is life. And I think sometimes, you know, we are not in sausage factories when we're dealing with children. (laughs) Mm. We're dealing with real children in real lives with a society that has changed more in the past 10 years than I think it has done in the previous, you know, 50 so the children that I'm working with now are very different to the children I was working with 25 years ago. Even down to things like speech and language, every school I work with, some even now have a speech and language therapist employed as part of the school team. Whereas when I first started teaching, it would be the odd child with some kind of speech delay or difficulty. Whereas now it's, it's lots, you've got the whole social media aspect of everything. Mm. I mean, I worked with some two-year-olds the other day and the setting was had a home element two with pictures and picture frames and we were laughing watching a child who was trying to swipe across a picture frame so she was looking at the picture but trying to swipe across the bottom obviously very used to an ipad and thinking you know she couldn't work out why the picture wouldn't change when she swiped it so we are dealing with children who have got access to all of that kind of technology way before they come you know from two upwards or before and that makes it means we have to stay current. We have to be relevant mm. because otherwise you can't meet the needs of your changing children mm. if you're not aware mm. what those changes are. I sometimes, you know, when I was ahead, we used to get CBeebies magazine and the ITV one delivered to the staff room with the TTS on a Friday, which was a slightly bizarre thing to do. But then they went into kind of our literacy bits. But I used to say to my staff. If we are dealing with children who are talking to you about Ben and Holly's Little Kingdom or Octonauts or, and you're still, when your kids were little and you're going back to Andy Pandy and whatever it may be, play school, if we're trying to create an environment that links into what they're talking about, you have to stay current in what you know. So you either watch CBeebies and CITV when you go home, you're lucky if you've got little children of your own, but if you haven't, a quick flick through the magazine yeah. on a Friday lets you know when they're talking to you about mm. Peppa Pig and Cousin Chloe, you know what it is that they're talking yeah. about. Well, just going back to your point earlier about, you know, being aware of children's worlds yeah. and, you know, not just what they're interested in, but how they work, how how they they behave, how they think and you know, in terms of the television programme as well, it was looking at the way life happens, not trying to impose 
constructs all yeah. the time and it's being a bit more flexible and responsive and I think you know that and also the, there is a real honesty between the young children who often don't have a filter which we all know if you were in early years is yep. great but also there was a real honesty with some of the older adults who also just didn't have the kind of filter that we have in everyday life so they would tell it like it was and they were quite yeah. blunt often with the children I know, I noticed that. and then and the children didn't no, respond in a bad way not actually. at all and yeah. the, the adults just said it as as it was going to be yeah. and the children equally then were really happy to share and you know it's going well when you've got children who are then happy to share personal things with their new friends, their older adults. Mm. You know those bonds are coming because they are happy to divulge things that are obviously very important and precious mm. to them. It was good to see those relationships also develop over time. Yeah, and maybe something for practitioners to take away or for schools to think about. As I was watching it, I was thinking about this whole thing of community involvement and like we were talking about before the podcast about when you take your children to an old people's home to sing to them which is it is a lovely thing to do yeah. but actually that's a meaningful yeah. relationship that you build on over time and then you see those positive benefits to Absolutely. both groups so it's it could a sustained be a model aspect that, of it yeah. yeah so it could be for some if people watch the program that they might want to get that relationship yeah. going with a group or grandparents who Absolutely. can come in and there are things to consider, obviously, if you're going to take children into an old people's mm. home, but also that idea of getting old people or older people to come into your space, yeah. obviously, with all the appropriate checks. There's been, I've had lovely people tweet me about, you know, I got, after watching the program, I got my granny to come in and read stories to the reception children. They absolutely loved mm. it. And again, they're brilliant boosters but they are kind of one-off events what mm. we really need is a model for sustainable mm. interaction between these two fairly untapped resources yeah. so if anyone's listening actually who who is actively interested in doing this or it'd be great if we can find out about yeah, schools who want, want to sort yeah. of start doing there's this also or, a lovely website called united for all ages and they've also got a twitter feed and they do a lot of work on establishing intergenerational oh, uh, right care and yeah. so if you are thinking about it their website's got loads of papers and research and all sorts of stuff on and it's really good to have a read mm. through and help you to consider that sounds good and also yeah. channel four did a um document which is on the channel four website linked to old people's form for year olds and again it's just basic information about setting up this kind of intergenerational right. relationships so that's worth looking good. for good well we'll put those links at the end on the podcast description and also all the links to your website and the ted talk that you did which i i loved i watched that quite well when did you do that it was a couple oh, it was, of years yeah, ago yeah it was a couple of years it? ago and it was it was scary uh, because you are literally live streamed and you've got your 15 minutes yeah and it, they've got a big oh clock God. in front of you counting down oh and so while you're trying to think about all the things you wanted to say mm. that you've rehearsed a million times and the clock's really going and then you've got that to finish big actually yeah. i've seen a lot of ted talks where yeah. they accidentally show the clock it's, yeah yeah it's literally the, like and when when you get to zero you you've got to try and There's finish well basically they say if you go over um then often they don't then upload your ted talk there's only a certain amount of minutes so if you go over your 15 you're actually stealing time from Somewhere. somebody else but trying to get all in your head while you've been filmed live whilst it's all going on <sighs> and finish you know on time that's not everyone's cup of tea i no. bet there are people listening now thinking yeah, that no, sounds like it was, it it was a lovely thing to be invited to do and i was very honored well, to, was... to do it but yeah it was a uh, I mean, I'd do it again, but it was a scary, 
scary yeah. experience. Oh, it was worth watching, definitely. <laughs> so there's there's loads you can find out about Alistair, and he's you obviously do conferences, training. Yeah, and, and they're all company. on my website. So if anybody's ever interested, yeah. they can just uh, have a look and all the infos on there. That's fabulous. Thank you so much. Oh, Alistair, you're so welcome. It's been your pleasure. Time. It's been really a real eye opener listening to you and talking to you, and hopefully you, the listener as well. It's given you lots of food for thought. You know, lots of practical tips. And also just ideas for what to reflect on, really, and just to stand back on and look at your practice. But if you need any guidance with that, obviously, there are there's some really good guidance out there. Yeah. So thank you once again. You and, are welcome. And thank you, listeners, for joining us today. Yes, thank for you this. <laughs> for listening to me later on. <laughs> I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. And we've got we've got some great guests lined up for us over the next few months as well. So do subscribe to the Curriculum Podcast if you don't already do so, so you don't miss a single episode and until next time it's goodbye from me goodbye